Let's get to the show, though. Uh, everybody, welcome to Care Dangerous Conversation. Uh, today I have joining me Arthur Coleman the third. Thank right. you for joining me, Arthur. So you've seen the show before. The first thing I like to do is give you your flowers. And, you know, today is just like any other day, I'm going to give you five. So sit back and relax, and let me just tell you okay. why I love you, brother. So I you already know I you welcome. Um, you already know I love you. Uh, that goes without saying. You're a good brother, good man. You know, you out here advocating for veterans, for black people on Capitol Hill. So everywhere you go, you're standing up for something. You care about the people mentor young black men uh and that's a beautiful thing brother and if i ever need to talk i can call you you're always there just a beautiful person and i i appreciate you for that i know some people watching may not know what you do in the community but you know we have a, people like you that go out and fight for african americans and fight for people in general and you're the, you're, you're the type of person that's behind the scene that people may not see but mm -hmm. you're, you're working on our behalf. So thank you so much. It, are you, are you, uh, if you could just, even though I kind of just gave you a little introduction, if you could just kind of introduce yourself to the people and let them know something about yourself and, and uh, what you do. Well, I'm just like I said, I'm just old country boy, Alabama with a dirty pickup truck. I advocate for veterans. I'm a Purple Heart recipient. I'm retired from the military. I'm legally trained been a lobbyist for a number of years and you know I facilitated things for you know for our working on things in our community and I'm a I'm a proud uh American descendant of slaves. Awesome. Awesome. So the first thing I kinda want to jump into is uh the part of your life about being a veteran. Uh you are a purple heart recipient. Yep. Um you're a hero of war. So I think that's a pretty big thing. And I just got, like I said, this session here is going to be a learning session. I got some, you know, questions I want to ask you, and we'll just go over it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I know you had some things you want to say about uh, black veterans in today's society. Um, I know people in America are always so patriotic. You know, they always, you know, back in the military, but I just want you to kind of explain what are your concerns uh, when it has to do with black veterans specifically in today's society? Well, first, before you become a veteran, we, we use a term when you advocate for veterans. We, you have to go through Title 10 before you get to Title 38. And Title 10 is it regulates the military. Title 38 regulates once you out of the military and you become a veteran. So Going back to a Title 10 situation, uh, black Americans or ADOS have served in every war since the beginning of this country, even before this country was formed in, in the uh, Revolutionary War. And we have done it even to our own detriment, where we, we, we will serve and be patriotic and do all these wonderful things, and then we'll come back home and be treated as second class and sometimes even worse, fourth or fifth class citizens. And uh, in that sense, you know, being a black military serviceman and looking at the, the past of how people served and what they had to come back to, uh, that's the first symptom 
of you know this uh uh white supremacy and racism and so once the military service is over with then you experience it again so now mm. i'm going to do a contract with uncle sam i'm going to serve 3 or 4 years or if it was prior to you know 1979 1980 um i'm going to be compelled to go in the military because i was drafted i was a part of the draft so all the individuals prior to that date were drafted in the military i was um i went in the military under the voluntary force so i volunteered to go in the service and uh can choose my job and everything else where those who were prior to that date uh they were compelled to go because of the draft if they met the uh, physical and mental requirements so now if you go back into the vietnam war i mean i can go back to world war 2 and korean war uh but i mean i think pre- pretty much the public knows that history they know what happened after world war 2 civil rights and everything else so i want to get to the post civil rights time during the civil rights time and post civil rights well before so, you go there let me let me interject uh and i'll let you continue i want to bring up a story of a guy that you know i i knew about for some time since you said world war 2 um let me see here so it's a guy named Isaac Wood Woodward, Woodward, um, I hope I'm saying his name, Woodward Jr., who was a decorated African-American World War II veteran. On February 2nd, 1996, hours after being honorably discharged from the U.S. Army, he was brutally beating, beaten and jailed while still in uniform by South Carolina police chief um, while taking a bus home. He was beaten so severely he lost his sight. The crime went unpunished and many forgot about it over time. Now, according to the New York Times, what happened on that bus is still unclear, but a dispute over a restroom break led to the driver to call the police. Uh, Mr. Woodard and the bus driver argued after Woodard asked to take a bathroom break. The bus company policy required drivers to accommodate such request but of course the driver claimed that Woodard was drunk and he was acting unruly um if you look up that case of uh Isaac Woodard Jr he was beaten so bad uh he became blind in history we know that the mistreatment of black veterans was common from physical violence to social humiliation mm-hmm. um especially in the 19th and the 20th century so i just want to interject and say that to give people a real life story of that treatment that you're you're speaking about so mm-hmm. I, i think it's good for them to know that story so if you want to continue from there i don't know if you want Again. to talk about that okay yeah and you know someone that's a little more notable that came back from war the Korean war was Megan Eggers. Yes. And and he came back and he was gunned down. Gunned down. So, you know, being a veteran, a lot of people uh would come and say, "Well, well, you a veteran, they look at you totally different this and that." Uh in some respects I do agree, but in the bigger scheme of things it it doesn't happen. And um you know, recently in the last uh 40 or 50 years 
since the Vietnam War, I'm more uh, in tune with them because I meet a lot of those guys now because we advocate for them. Because uh, prior to the 1990s, only about 10% of uh, black veterans applied for any benefits mm. uh, and received any benefits. So uh, whether they applied and the forms came became missing or they was turned around, all we know was documented only about 10% were able to have some form of benefit from the VA during that time. Now, that number will increase if I talk about the uh, VA loan for housing. That's a little different. But for wealth building benefits, right, very few veterans was able to get the compensation and pension, all the suffering and uh, exposure to certain chemicals in Vietnam. So around the 90s, they had this big flow and flux of veterans who was having cancer, having issues, having problems, having kids and everything. And all these veterans started coming out to say, hey, you know, we had these issues and they found out it was Agent Orange. And so they had a presumption. And a presumption just means if you was around it, if you was in the area, then we presume that you was exposed to it. And so this, you, you most likely it's plausible that you have this disability. And so uh, that's where a lot of these veterans come out. So now advocating for veterans, I was the uh, National Service Director for the Military Order of the Purple Heart, which is a congressional charter organization. And our focus is to uh, take care of veterans, widows, and their children, their dependents. And that's to uh, help them receive compensation and pension, uh, medical care, housing, uh, help them to get their lives together to find, you know, mental health and, and be able to uh, help them with camaraderie back into the community. And we do a lot of other civil things. Well, in, in my tenure during that time, I was tasked to run this national organization, you know, and we had people overseas here in this country, and I had well over 100 employees, and I was dealing with, you know, dealing with advocating for veterans. And during that time, I just seen a lot of veterans coming through the door, a lot of veterans. So, you know, I went from a, a micro where I was helping maybe like 15, 20 veterans that I knew, people who knew me in the community, helped them, try to find them housing, uh, help them with their, their forms, the file, you know, file for benefits, things like that, family members. But once I got in a position where I had to help many and look at certain things, I've seen a lot of African-American veterans who didn't receive any benefits. They were in their 70s, never filed for nothing. So why, someone asked me, why, why aren't they aware of the services that are out there for them, Art? Well, today, you know, they advertise it. I mean, you can go on TV and see stuff for VA in the last 10 years. Well, let's go back. We, we have to really go back. Let's go back to the 70s. What was going on? Uh, I mean, we just had the Civil Rights Bill signed a, a decade prior to that, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, even although a law is signed and mandated, that doesn't mean people are going to just abide by it. You know, it's going to be some people huffing and puffing, you know, and everything else. And so what happens is, is that they never put the knowledge out. And so we had the ignorance in, in our community. Then on top of that, you know, me being from Alabama, remember the Tuskegee experiment. That was mm -hmm. at the VA. The VA was right next to it. And so my own father, told me he would never go to the VA because he's not going to let those white folks give him a disease. Wow. He told me that. Yeah. He, he was afraid to go. So let and me I ask you a question. Because 
in the military, we always hear people talk about the brotherhood. Do the black soldiers not feel a part of that brotherhood? Do they have their separate brotherhood? Because I know even when we go to school, it's like we're always separated from each other. Is it the same in the military? Can you speak on that? Yeah, I can tell you this. So I always tell people, I learned this from one of my old mentors, and he, he was actually a white guy. And he told me that you have to put people in situations. And this is the best way for me to explain it. So it's all on a 100% scale. You're not going to even love yourself 100%. A lot of people think they love themselves 100%. That's only God. So you're going to give yourself 90%. And I'm going to tell you why. People drink. People smoke cigarettes and do this and that. So you're not loving yourself 100%. And you eat a lot of sweets and all this stuff. So I'm going to give you 90%. The only other thing that's close to that is mom and dad and your kids. So, so they'll be in the high 80s. Once you get down to 70% or 60%, you get to what we consider the, uh, the friends, 60%. From 60 to about 40%, that's where your friends sit, right? They sit there. Most of the time, they agree with certain things as there or they disagree, but they there most of the time to help you with this and that. Then when you get past the 40%, you get down below 40%, you get to what we call the allies. Allies is going to be from like 39% to 20%. Then you get to 19 to 1%. We call those situationships. So in the military, when you're in war, you have a situationship. Remember, they always taught us that there's no atheist in a foxhole. In other right. words, everybody pray to God when the bullets start flying. So <laughs> when, when, a, when, when a white guy is next to me and we fight and they coming in, the, the guy on the other side, he don't know. He, he probably know I'm black, but he don't care about that. I'm American. So this same white guy, he can probably call me all kind of Negroes or niggas or whatever the case may be. But he know at that time I'm his best friend. And so that's <laughs> right. the situation shit. That's the brotherhood that you see. The brotherhood works in that. Now, can relationships grow out of that? Yeah, if you save a man's life, if they depend on it, some things do work out of that, and, and they become better, and they might get upgraded to the uh, the ally side. You know, I had maybe one that made it to a friend. He down in the, the 51%, you know what I'm saying? Right. But the, the, the whole thing is, is that that's the situation with the brotherhood. That's that's as far as it it goes. It's just a situation. Because that was great, great. It, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So you know, when in the military, what a lot of people don't understand in the military, the military has cliques. You have cliques mm -hmm. in the military. So it can be regional. Like if you're from down south, everybody from down south, they just kind of hang out with each other. Or yeah. if they're from the Midwest or Northeast or wherever. Uh, that 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 happens quite a bit, but uh, I think what happens in the military is is that you need the other person, and that's how the brother brotherhood kind of comes out. So when you see a mostly combat veterans, veterans who actually have been deployed, whether they've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Kosovo, Desert Storm, or Vietnam, those dudes, regardless of what race they're in. They'll put that aside for the people who went to war with them or people they know they went to war. They'll, they'll set that aside. It's kind of like I consider a waiver. It's a waiver. Oh, you okay. It's kind of like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is, is Michael Jordan, but 
you know, if he didn't play ball and everybody didn't know him, I mean, he'll be just like me in the street. <laughs> so, That's I so mean, true. it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, why is it that, like, we see some people come out of the military and they're, like, boasting and or not necessarily boasting, but they seem so financially stable. And then you see other veterans come out and they're homeless or they're, I mean, is that, can you break that down a little bit? On yeah, how I can. Like, well, well, well it's, it's, it's a lot of variables there. Right. A lot of variables there. Um. But I can give you uh, some type of premise to help you out here. So to, to narrow this down, you do have veterans who do better than others. I was a combat veteran. And so most combat veterans, we once we leave the military, especially in the last 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, most of us are pretty much on the down end. So if you want to look at veterans who are not doing so well, you'll find combat veterans. Why? Because they suffer from PTSD, TBI. They might have physical injuries. Uh, this, this mental health uh, part, you know, with suicide, not being able to, to maintain it. And the reason why a lot of veterans, the, the vast majority of the military, right, is under the age of 25. And a lot of people don't know that. The vast majority of the military is under the age of 25. That's the vast majority. So when you're talking about the worker bees, we're talking about people who graduated from high school, uh, people who just been in the military their first four years or first five years or first six years, right? If you came in when you was 18, right, and you're 25 years old, if you do the math, if you if you do the math on that, right, you know, you already been in the military for like seven years. Right? Okay, if you make it to 28, you halfway through the military service. So, majority of the military are young guys. They just left home playing video games. I'm just talking about the people that, that was working for me. Now, when I came into service, they didn't have a lot of folks uh, playing video games and stuff. I mean, we still had Atari and, and, and Nintendo, uh, you know, the Super Nintendo with the duck gun and stuff. But, uh, you know, we still had people playing outside, you know, stuff like that. So, when we came in, me shooting a gun wasn't nothing. You know what I'm saying? I was I shot a gun before I even joined the military. So that that wasn't no big deal. You know, me being from Alabama, the country and all that kind of stuff. But for a lot of these guys that's new that was coming in when, when I was in charge of these guys, these guys was coming straight from playing the the what they call it, the the Sony PlayStation and the uh, all these games and so they were playing the war games on the video games and they coming into the service and they never seen a dead body. They they never seen nobody blown up. You know, some of them might have seen people shot, but I mean you go to a space where you're not just seeing someone shot, you're seeing one dismantled. Dismantled. Mm -hmm. I mean their guts and stuff on the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, you watch somebody that's close to you that die. I mean that's a lot. And so now these guys are at the end of their service, they get a debriefing Right, while they was in service, the service itself is a is a culture. Being in the military is a culture. So especially if you're a man, it's a culture. Like if you sit, they tell you to tuck it in. Right? We used to use a term if you were um if you got if you was down or you sick or you couldn't keep up and you know, and you can excuse my language, but they just call you broke dick. 
<laughs> and if you was if you was broke, dick, you were looking bad. So what kind, bad. Of, what, what kind of energy did you have to pull on inside just to never give up? Or I guess when you don't have any choice, I mean, what does that come? Well, this from? this comes back to the 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 symptom when they get out. We have what this called we call it false motivation. See, a lot of people think the military is very disciplined. The military is only disciplined with consequence. It's a consequence. Mm -hmm. When you do a contract with Uncle Sam, right, if you don't do something, it's a felony. This is the federal government. If you don't do something, it's a felony. Now, they do have rules to keep you from being charged with a felony. They have what they call non-judicial punishment. We mm -hmm. call that UCMJ. And what UCMJ basically do they get the, it's a corrective action where they use a punishment where it doesn't go in the court system where you get court martial where it's it's like a, a a felony for the federal government. So you know when you have all these restrictions, it's you know it's not like you know people say oh military like prison. No, I'm not gonna say that because you're free to do whatever you want to do. You got choices. It's just that if you make this choice, it might be de detrimental to your freedom as well as your future. So you have choices. It's just that, you know, and they do that because if you're in war and if I had to command you in war and I need you to take the heel, I don't need you, if it's a lawful order, I don't need you to question my order. So you have to be trained not to question my order, but I have to be trained that you can trust me as a leader. So the military do create good leaders, but I think some of the false motivations about mm -hmm. it, uh, what happens with, with uh, the false motivations is that we motivate people that they're invincible. And then when they lose that, that reassurance, because in the military, we reassure. It's, it's always a reassurance. That's why we have to get up and do cadence in the morning when we run. You get a guy, he never ran more than a 40-yard a, a dash in his life. But once he come in the military, he can run 15 miles. You know why? Because I'm up here calling cadence. I'm saying left, 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 right, left. You know, I'm making up songs. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre ain't got nothing on a soldier like me. You know, all this kind of stuff. You motivating them continuously, continuously. And, and so when you motivate them, now we're going to cut it off. You finna lead the military. Hey, soldier, now you're a veteran. We're going to give you the GI Bill. We're going to give you a VA loan. You, you, may be being, you might be entitled to even more money from compensation. Good luck with your life. Well, and they get out there. Right. And guess what? what? Nobody's motivating them. Nobody. They probably came from a broken oh. home. They could have came from a broken home. The only way they, the, the only escape was the military. They probably Good came point. from somewhere... They, they probably came from a good home, but all of the things they seen in the military because their home was so wholesome, right? They seen all this crazy stuff in the military. They don't even know how to go back to wholesome. And so now we have these guys that get out and they've been in these situations and you want them to be normal. That's what I want and, to ask you, Art, real quick. How do you change from the day you leave for service compared to the day you come back home? I can't give you a, a blueprint for everybody that's a veteran, but what I can give you is my blueprint of what I had. It was a struggle for me. 
it was a struggle for me. So I was shot five times and blown up in Iraq. That's where I got the Purple Heart. I've been deployed several times, seen war. So it was a, it was just another day. And I tell people this: they, a person asked me, "Was I scared to go to war?" And I said I was terrified. But the first time I went to war, I was never scared. See, as I got older, the more fear grew into me because I started learning that the situation was chance. See, when I first went, I wasn't scared. And the reason why I wasn't scared is because it was called false motivation. So you go through your basic training, you go through your AIT, I was Army, and, and once you go through your advanced, your advanced training, infantry training, and everything, you get out here, and then you're feeling strong. But then after you get older and older, you start feeling pain in your body. You start mm. seeing people die over the years. You start being afraid. So when I left the military, I left a group of people who I consider my extended family because I'd seen them more than anybody. And uh, you have to understand, when you get deployed, you know how you see your family, right? You, if you're a kid, you only see your family a few hours a day during the school year and Saturday and Sunday and every holiday. That's it. So you don't see them 24-7. When you get, when you're in the military, you, especially when you get deployed, I see the same people 24-7. And if you add the time up in hours, I actually, uh, I'm actually around them more than I was around with my family. Especially if you put a couple years around. If you're getting deployed for 18 months and you're doing a 24-hour shift and these are the people that you sleep next to, you bump next to, you fight with, you train with, you're around them almost 24-7. So if you take the hours and all of your life, that's where it's at. Now you're going to cut that off. And then on top of that, I was injured. It took me about three years to get to a point where I can be around people, where I felt good about myself. And I know people was like, well, how did you feel good? Why do you even feel good about yourself? Well, how are you going to feel good about yourself if they, uh, they promoted you to a sense where you was this strong alpha male guy, you fighting wars, you invincible, but now I'm in a wheelchair. I can't even push my own wheelchair unless it's in a circle because one of my arms got blasted open where I can see right through it. So I can only turn myself in a circle. So once you went from shooting up stuff, running, calling cadence, people saying, hey, Sarge, this and that, people looking up to you, all this kind of stuff. Now people look down at you. I'm in a wheelchair. I was this tough guy before. Uh, if I try to move in a wheelchair, I'm just going in a circle because I don't got one on to push me around. You know what? That sounds walk. just like the Michael Jordan analogy you made earlier. Because uh, a lot of stars, when they play basketball, they play a sport or they're a celebrity and they're up on that high and everybody's there to see them. And then when they get older or they have to leave and they feel depressed, that self-worth goes down because those people aren't there you know, giving them that attention anymore. That's what that's really reminding me about. So with what you just said there, I want to ask for the people that need to know this, how can families make the transition back for veterans easier when they come home? Is there any way? Uh, yeah, it is. It's, 
you have to have a support group, but what you can't do is interfere with the process. It takes other military people to help guide the veteran. A lot of people don't understand that. Not mm. just a person that's been in the military, they have to be in the war. And so we uh, peer on peer, what we call uh, peer on peer uh, services are the best thing, peer on peer. See, now when you start speaking a language, you know how they always talk about love language? In order for a relationship to work, you have to somehow have some of the same love language. Well, with veterans, you have to speak the same language. It has to be a peer-on-peer type of language. And so they promote that. I think that's one of the good things in recent years. That, that worked for me. That worked for a lot of veterans. I did a lot of peer mentoring, right? I mentor people, you know, because I was the peer, been to war, been shot up, blown up. And so they can hear me. You know, if my mom was talking to me and I love my mom to death, I couldn't hear her. My mom had never been to war. She wasn't in the not, not for Right. She she so she couldn't I couldn't hear her. And so what happened is is that that peer on peer, that peer mentorship. It helped me. And then once I got help, I wanted to make sure that other veterans who suffered through this, right, would get the help. That's beautiful. Uh, again, or even though you're not done talking, I, I, I have to say thank you for your service because just, I've heard your story before, but you kind of told it in more detail here today. And that's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, you know, but you know what? I made it through, and the, the, the and uh, people ask me, well, do veterans? I keep telling them I'm not common when it comes to veterans. I'm not the common denominator when it comes to veterans, especially combat veterans. A lot of my brothers and sisters are the veterans that you see that's homeless. A lot of them are in transitional homes, or, uh, uh, what they call supportive, at, uh, adaptive uh, housing, things like that. So I don't know, you know, maybe it's that, that old country boy stuff or maybe it's some of that, that stuff my daddy gave me in his DNA, you know, in the cotton fields, sugar cane fields and all that stuff in, in southern Alabama down on the Gulf Coast. Maybe it's some of that where it, it just gave me to make me want to fight and keep going. You know, because even after that, I had to learn how to write again. I had to learn how to walk again. I was wow. able to go get degrees. I went to law school, all this other stuff afterwards. And and, and uh, I'm thankful that God gave me the uh, one, a second chance at life. Because yeah. anytime something happened like that, your whole life flashed before you. And after that, I just made a promise that I'll be a servant. And especially to my own folks. I've always been an advocate for my own people because I seen how my people struggled. And that made me interested in history of my people even more to see that we had so many black people fight for our country and they came back to be second citizens. And it goes how back. That, how does that make y'all feel? How does that make you feel when you come back and you're being treated as second class citizen? You, you were shot five times. Had to learn how to walk again. Had to learn how to write again. Then you come home, and those white brothers you've been trenches with, you feel like they're getting a different kind of treatment than you. What What does that do to your morale? What does that do to you, the person, not just the soldier? What does that do to you? Well, I tell people this analogy, right? 
the Vietnam veteran, he went and fought in Vietnam. They, the, the America told him the Viet Cong was his enemy. He gets back home in America and about 15 years later, half the gas stations in his neighborhood owned by Viet, Vietnamese. I go to Iraq hmm. and meet and fight Iraqis, go to Afghanistan and Afghan, you know, Af, you know, Afghanis and things like that. And then they say, okay, the, the Taliban, they give them a name, insurgents, all this stuff. That's your enemy. But I get back home, they own the gas stations, the clothing stores. So not only do you feel like a secondary citizen, then you come back and the enemies that they created. I didn't create them. We didn't, no black folks went over there and did nothing to these folks. We don't own no oil companies, right? Ain't nobody threatened my daddy, you know, so Bush, daddy got threatened. He had to do what he had to do. So when we come back, we looking at this stuff and we like, well, damn, we went and fought these battles. And then we get back, these people, they own stuff and black folks don't own nothing. You know, because me, I think struggle, you know, everybody else is fighting for police brutality, stuff like that. No, nah, I ain't fighting for that. I'm fighting for reparations. You know why? Because that's our power. And most black veterans, since Rosewood, since, since all these black Wall Streets, if you check history and you see what all these black veterans have in common, right? All these, these, these economic systems like uh, in Tulsa and all them places, you know what they all had in common? The people who helped start in those areas were veterans. See, they went somewhere else and they seen something. I call it the, the Jesus syndrome, right? You can't be Jesus at home. You know why Jesus of Nazareth couldn't be Jesus at home? Because wow. everybody knew little baby Jesus. I remember Jesus when you was a baby, when you were five years old, when you was eight, when you was 12. You, you, you know, you want to be the Messiah, but you 12 years old. Jesus, I remember I used to feed you some collard greens. You can't be Jesus in Nazareth. So Jesus had to go somewhere else and become Jesus. So with the, the military, right, in order for us to learn something, these black veterans like uh, Mega Eggers, he went somewhere else. He went and fought in war, came back home, and he's seen something. If you look in history, a lot of these old leaders, these old leaders, they was in the military, and they came back home. They seen something different. And a lot of these, these old sharecropper uh, carpetbagger, white folks, especially in the South, they didn't want these Negroes to move down South. As a matter of fact, it was an old edict. It was an old order. When the Rough Riders went down into Caribbean, Roosevelt had them when they went and fought battles down there. They had all these Negro soldiers. They didn't want them Negro soldiers to go back down South. They sent them out West. How do you think you got towns like Portland, Oregon, Seattle, mm. and Los Angeles, all those little cities that was incorporated by Damn black true. folk. They was okay. old veterans that incorporated them cities, old Buffalo soldiers, Rough Riders. They got them out there. See, what people don't understand is, is that veterans, a lot of black veterans been angry. Mm. They've been angry. But what happened is, is that we only can do so much. We try to come back and teach our people. Most veterans, especially as black, they always active in their community. They're very active. Right. You know, do you think the Black Panthers 
uh, went and formed. They knew stuff about guns. Who do you think taught them about guns? Them veterans. Wow. They came back and explained to them about guns. They had black veterans a part of the organization, right? They used to teach us how certain things work. So, you know, when it comes to it, you ask me, are black veterans angry? That's it's self-explanatory. We've been angry, right? I just think now is the time to get everybody else on the same page to have that same anger. But don't use it to burn everything up and tear it up. Use it to build our wealth in our own community. Because I'm going to tell you something. Every time a message comes up, right, about black folks, it's about shut up and just do it. I call it the Nike syndrome. I know you say I got all these drones and syndromes going on. Nike syndrome, they shut up and do it when it comes to black folks. But if we ask for something pacific, shut up and just do it. It's just like vote. We go ask for something. Well, we want this. Well, you know what? Mm, we can't do that. This is what we're going to give you. And we just want y'all to shut up. And we just want y'all to do it. That's it. That's okay, what, I, that's just, what I, just, I just want to I always wondered about this. Should family members ask soldiers when they come back or veterans about their experiences? Or can that be, should that be avoided because it's traumatic for the individual? It should be avoided until that veteran seeks professional help. Until professional help, I would advise anyone, let the veteran get professional help. Please push him to that direction. Professional help. Just don't try to communicate with the veteran because at that time, you can try to calm him down. That's fine for a temporary basis, but the veteran needs professional help. And uh, because a lot of these guys, you know, they're not dangerous, but they can be inherently dangerous. You know, they can have all type of PTSD, all type of episodes. You don't know what the trigger is. They need to find professional help. And once they receive professional help, then if they're comfortable, right, they'll let you know. They'll let you know what you need to do or say or something like that. Is there anything that it may be hard for a veteran to express to their loved ones from your perspective? Maybe you have some insight since you've been there, done that. Uh, you know, emotion, you know, being able to express emotion would be difficult depending on uh, what type of uh, situation that veteran was in. Uh, if he was in a, a big combat, uh, rep, rep, you know, situation, um, also veterans become very distant because they lose this, this, uh, organic family that they receive in the military. So going back to that deployment, you with someone 24 seven, you see them all the time. So, you know, if you in a, uh, you know, I, I didn't really, I've been in some spots where I had to do what they call a buddy bath where, I had to have a buddy, make sure I'm good, where I take a dump or take a piss. Mm -hmm. You know, and they have to guard me during that time so I won't get shot with a sniper. And I have to do vice versa. I mean, you you know, it's a buddy system. So, you know, you have to make sure that uh, you, you are in, you know, this is the space you leave. And when that gets cut off, 
then you don't value everything else the same way. It's kind of like, uh, I know I had some episodes before, and I had a very good friend. We were real good friends, and, and we was in a uh, like a little firefight. And I was deployed, and, you know, he took out some people that kept them from killing me. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, you feel like you owe this dude forever. I mean, let's be for real. If someone kind of saved your life on something, you can't. I can't value that, like, the same way I say, okay, uh, Miss Dangerous, can you lend me 20 grand? I think my life is worth more than 20 grand, you know? Even if you go help me, if, if I'm in foreclosure, you save my house in foreclosure, I think my life is worth more than foreclosure. It just, it's kind of hard to value someone who does that. And so that becomes a part of your, your family. My, my, my spouse, my wife will tell you that I have some good friends and they are all crazy. And she, <laughs> she sees me, she sees me, and she she thinks my friends, my veteran friends, are like me. And when she meet them, she be like, babe, they they crazy. They, I mean, they'll be on. I got one we call uh he he ghetto rich. That's his name. He live in Philadelphia. Well, don't forget it's gonna be out there now. So he may be watching. Ghetto rich may oh, be well, watching. He, he ain't, he ain't, he, yeah, he cool. We cool. Me and oh, him okay. fuss all the time. But let me tell you something. The the guy heart is made of gold. He have a block party every year for his neighborhood kids, and he spend well over six, seven thousand dollars of his own money. He don't even raise money; he do it himself, right? He pay for it himself for people in the community. So these are the veterans I'm dealing with. Then I got another friend. He volunteers. Uh, he's from Atlanta, Georgia. He lives in Texas, right? And uh, he'll go out here and he'll ride buses and teach kids how to wrestle and play baseball for free and all this kind of stuff because they retired. They had an income for it. I wish I, I wish the cost of living here in D.C. was like that, but it's not. But, uh, you know, so, I, I, you know, that that pretty much can, can. I'll pick it up from there because a lot of people in the comments here are asking about the type of help that veterans receive. And one great question that just came by, does that uh, emotional support or some kind of therapy start when you're in service, or is that after? Well, when I was in service, no, okay. no, it didn't. They now they do have they they have programs now started about ten years ago, and they have what they call WTUs, and I know the military got all these acronyms, but we call it Warrior Transition Units, and Warrior Transition Units. They, these are units set up for service members who are about to leave the service, whether they suffer from uh, a physical disability or individual wound, I mean, an invisible wound, which would be like TBI, PTSD, more, men, you know, psychological stuff. And, uh, or who takes, uh, you know, psychotropic medicines and things like that. So they start the process and, you know, they have gotten better to, you know, uh, migrate everything over to the VA system, right? And But when I was in, they didn't have those programs. It was like I was still in my old combat unit. They just put me in what they call rear detachment. And those are the people who left back 
at the, the garrison part, and they made me pull a duty to answer the phone. So I'm in a wheelchair with one arm, and I'm answering the phone, and that was my therapy when I was going through all my hospitalization before they said, hey, we finna retire you. Here's your cup of coffee, your coffee cup. Here's your certificate of retirement. Here's your honorable discharge. Thank you, and God bless. And that was it. That's how I left the military. Wow. And they changed it. And, and the reason why they changed it, uh, it was so bad. They had veterans getting out. They was getting shortchanged in the retirement. Uh, they had to introduce uh, laws like Chapter 61, which is a law if you got less than 20 years, you can still retire. Because in the federal system, you got 15 years in the federal system, you're vested. But in the military, you know, you might not necessarily be vested. And so they changed a lot of those things. And we, we just, I'm just so, so happy for that. So, and I'm glad veterans are able to get that. So I just think, uh, you know, when in the military, we didn't, at the time I was in, we didn't get all of the psychological care that we needed to get. And I think now it's a lot better than it was before. I don't know if it's fixed, right? We're still, you know, the improvements must be made. You know, everything must be somewhat better, you know. But um, I just know it wasn't like that when I was in service. Um, so, Art, just to go ahead and close this part about uh, being a veteran up, I would like to ask you, uh, what are some of the good things that you learned from serving in the military? Uh, you learn how to, well, you know, you learn this term, it's called soup sandwich and hurry up and wait. Those are two things that I learned in the military. And a uh, soup sandwich is when, uh, is exactly what it is. A wet sandwich or a sandwich with bread. It don't make any sense. That's what we call a soup sandwich. The military, the army is what we consider idiot proof. And that's why when something go wrong, we call it a soup sandwich. Also, you know, hurry up and wait. The military is always being prepared. We always have to be on the go. We always have to be ready to go. We have what we call these EDRIs. And, and basically, EDRI, I forgot what the acronym stands for. It just means we finna test how ready you are. We're going to call you in 30 minutes. And, and uh, if you're not there... If you're not there in 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 30 minutes, then you late or you miss movement, you AWOL, this and that, because you're going to be ready for war, right? So, you know, and that's what we call hurry up and wait. We'll get ready, have our weapons, have all of our stuff packed up, ready to go, and we get there, we wait about 15 hours, nothing happened. They have us all sitting on, sleeping on the floor, waiting to get on a plane to go fly wherever, Right? And and not going not going nowhere. Yep. So uh the other thing is is that you you under you you learn uh organization. You learn how to organize stuff. Leadership, you do learn leadership in the military. That that's that is definitely something. You learn how to sacrifice your well being for the people that you uh that you command or you lead. And, uh, you know, you, you have to give up a lot of your personal time when you are, especially when you're a buck sergeant, 
or you a staff sergeant, sergeant first class, a lot of your personal time go to your soldiers. And and if we have any veterans on here, especially the NCOs that was on the, the, the uh, Instagram, on the gram, they'll tell you, you're getting people out of jail. I had a, a soldier that was a stripper. I had a male stripper and a female stripper. I was stationed in Fort Hood, Texas. I was in 4th Infantry Division. And I was a part of a, 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 I had a detachment. I was with 4th FBS. And this is the first time I had females in my unit. First time I had females in the unit. It was a non-combat unit, but it was in a, uh, a combat brigade. So they were short on NCOs. They started putting us over here and tasking us and augmenting us in certain positions because they just needed people with uh, rank. So I had females, and I actually got in trouble one time about it. So me being a male soldier, being, you know, mostly were all male units prior to this, right? So one of the females, she had her monthly come on, right? And we had to do PT, and then after that, they wanted us to go out into Fort Hood field area. So they had this little field area where they had to take out supplies and drive out there and all that kind of stuff. And it was her turn to do it. So she came to me and said, sorry, Coleman. He said, well, right now, you know, I'm having some issues and can somebody else do it? Now, this is the military, right? And I said, no, you're going to do it. Put a diaper on it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, put a diaper on it. And so I'm thinking I ain't say nothing wrong because I ain't been with females. We talk to men like this, this and that. Well, next thing you know, I'm talking to the commander, uh -oh. the battalion. He said, "Are you? Did you lose your rabbit ass mind?" And I was like, "Well, what you mean, sir?" He said, "You can't tell no female to put no diaper on it. This ain't this type of man's army." Right? And I had to apologize and all this stuff. She still had to go do the mission, but I can't tell her that. So, you know, it was a learning experience for me. And being a, uh, being a leader, you have to understand that certain things, you know, people's like, well, in the military, you can hurt folks' feelings. Yeah, I can hurt her feelings. I can call her anything else in the book. Wait, we got, we got, oh, Instagram, I'm updated. We got 25 seconds remaining. So, oh my God, we're getting so much good information. Tell your friends, tell your mama, tell your cousins. We're coming back. We're going to talk politics, ADOS. You don't want to miss it.